This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. Dash Silver and Carol Gold were Hollywood stars in the 1950s, lovers on screen and off. Decades after their relationship ends, Carol receives an envelope with a surprising request from Dash. Will she honor it or not? As she considers her options, she recalls their Tinseltown past and the reason she's had nothing to say to him for so long. Jeff Fleischer is a Chicago-based author journalist and editor. His fiction has appeared in more than 60 publications. He's the author of nonfiction books, including Votes of Confidence, A Young Person's Guide to American Elections, The Latest Craze, A Short History of Mass Hysterias, and the forthcoming A Hot Mess, How the Climate Crisis is Changing Our World. This is a work of fiction. Silver and Gold, A Hollywood Story, written by Jeff Fleischer. Read by A.J. Ferraro. The letter arrived in a comically large envelope, larger than a standard manila envelope, large enough that it could have held something much more important than a card-sized, handwritten note asking her to come to Los Angeles. Carol Gold brought it home with the rest of her mail on her weekly trip to the box she maintained at the local post office. The handwriting on the return address looked familiar, but she didn't immediately recognize it. She didn't open it until she'd walked three miles home, placed her cane in its holder beside the back door, and eased herself into her overstuffed armchair. Her social security check had arrived, along with a postcard from her grandniece traveling in Morocco, her usual assortment of magazine subscriptions, and dozens of examples of the predatory junk mail aimed at less savvy women of her age. Carol thumbed through the mail sorting it into piles to recycle, save for later, and read now while watching her daily TV game shows. When she got to the large envelope, she saw it had been mailed from an unfamiliar place called Sherwood Pines. The letter it contained was written on stationery from the same facility, which identified it as a nursing home and hospice in Culver City, California. The penmanship was sloppy and uneven, obviously the work of a shaking hand. She only skimmed the letter at first, until she saw the name at the bottom. Dash Silver. For a few seconds after reading that once-familiar signature, Carol Gold struggled to catch her breath. She hadn't seen or heard from Dash since 1951, though it would be inaccurate to say she didn't still think about him, often. She took her reading glasses from the end table and put them on, perusing the note three more times. It told her that Dash Silver 
now 92 to her 84, was dying of a chronic infection in his lungs, no doubt the result of decades of smoking. He said the doctors gave him anywhere from four to six weeks, which now meant three to five, after accounting for the postal delay. His family was with him, and the pain was manageable, but he wanted to get all of his affairs in order. Part of that, he wrote, is I would like to see you one last time. I want to apologize to you for everything. In person, if you'll give me the chance. He had enclosed a voucher for a round-trip bus ticket from Berkeley to Culver City, valid for six weeks, and $200 in cash for a hotel. So the cost wouldn't be an issue. Carol was retired, so she had the time. And Sally Jarvis next door was used to taking care of her cat and collecting her newspapers whenever she left town. She knew she could go. What she didn't know was whether she should. Should she dignify his request by going? was an apology from Dash Silver, one she could actually accept. Silver and gold, the industry papers used to call them. There had been a time in her early 20s when Carol collected such mentions in a scrapbook, carefully cutting them out of newspapers and magazines and slipping them into plastic sleeves to keep their yellowing to a minimum. Silver and gold on the red carpet at an award ceremony. Silver and gold starring in The Idol of Zanzibar. Silver and gold vacationing on the French Riviera. At the time, her old school friends usually found out what she was doing with her life via dispatches of the world reels that occasionally highlighted the Hollywood exploits of silver and gold before the start of meteor Hollywood offerings. Never mind that neither was a real last name. Carol Gold had been born Carol Goldschlitz. She changed her name at the suggestion of the talent scout who first discovered her performing a tap routine in what passed for a local theater troupe in downtown Berkeley. Her troupe, all young women who had attended the same Jewish day school, had booked a fill-in gig at the Hearst Greek, opening for the Reggie Walters Orchestra. With the benefit of nearly seven decades' hindsight, she understood how random was the series of events that had created her career. A Jewish girl her age and status was expected to marry young, have many children, keep a good home, and generally leave her decisions to others. Her career prospects existed only because of the stock market crash, when the loss of her father's job and savings helped him to see the value in having his daughters contribute a few dollars here and there. Reggie Walters was the kind of entertainer most good-sized cities had, the kind who was able to make a respectable living playing local venues, the occasional night in Oakland or Sacramento, but wasn't quite good enough to rise to the next level. By definition, however, a big band was always discovering new musicians, and talent scouts were always trying to pick off the best ones and steer them toward better opportunities. Carol didn't think of herself as one of the best, even in her small dance group. She envied Judith's timing, the way she intuitively picked up any new step on the first try. She felt she could never hope to have Dorothy's athleticism, Sandra's body, or Ruthie's hair. Unlike those girls, however, Carol Goldschlitz was funny. She danced well enough the night the talent scout noticed her, but what he really noticed was how she played to the crowd. The way her face could mug right along with the mood of every song without her feet missing a step, and the way she feigned ironic shock or bemused ennui during the underwhelming between-song comedy banter Reggie Walters performed. To the scout's mind, 
the other girls had more talent. But it was the same kind of talent possessed by hundreds of other girls their age who moved to Los Angeles every week. Carol Goldschlitz was different. After the show one night, he handed her a card and offered to get her a few auditions if she would commit to coming to Hollywood. That decision seemed so easy back then. Rereading the letter in her hand as she sipped herbal tea, it struck Carol as funny that she'd had no doubt about packing a suitcase and moving alone to a city she'd never seen before. But now she had serious reservations about making the same journey to a city where she'd spent the most memorable years of her life. Then again, Carol Goldschlitz had never really been hurt. Carol Gold knew, better than most people, how quickly and how permanently that could change. Carol spent the summer of 1942 learning that Los Angeles already had more than its share of women her age who were prettier, or less careful with their propriety, or even just luckier. Her first meeting with the studio executive didn't succeed, and neither did the next few. She didn't consider herself a religious type, but was just religious enough to be uncomfortable with some of the ways other girls got their roles on screen. She had been close to giving up the night she met Dash at a jazz club. Somewhere in the attic, she still had trunks full of memorabilia, evidence that their chance meeting had changed her life. As far as she knew, none of her current Berkeley neighbors had a clue that she had framed movie posters featuring her name and face, dresses and jewels worn to award shows and premieres, photographs where she stood next to Gable and Garbo, Bacall and Brando. She'd thought more than once that Norma Desmond would have stared green-eyed at her eventual posthumous estate sale. She was content to leave those mementos to collect dust, though she could never bring herself to throw them away. Sometimes, she still thought the whole experience had been worth it, while other times, she wished she could wake up and still be a teenager. Dash Silver wasn't quite a star when they met, but the studio had already decided he would become one. In person, he was handsome enough, but he was made for black-and-white film. On the screen, his facial imperfections provided an ideal canvas, casting shadows in the right spots. Something as simple as a head tilt could turn him from a swashbuckling hero into a nefarious villain. They met at an after-party for the famous London Express, a high-society farce in which Dash had played a small but memorable role as a butler feeding information about the family business to the rival whose sister he wanted to marry. The studio wanted to test him in a pivotal part, and early reaction to the film suggested he was ready for more. Most of the party guests congregated around the leads, who posed for press photos and signed autographs amid the elaborate decor. Various local acts performed on a stage decorated like the inside of a luxurious passenger train. Having booked a spot as one of the chorus line dancers, Carol wore the same outfit as the other girls, a train conductor's hat and vest, fishnet stockings, and high heels. Something other than the outfit must have stood out about her, because not long after the show portion of the evening, a soon-to-be movie star swooped in to light her cigarette. Dash introduced himself and bowed to kiss her gloved hand. She gave him her best Mae West impression, with a little Betty Boop thrown in, and the two wound up bantering for hours. They found an unoccupied table among the more famous performers, 
and Dash made sure their waitress provided a steady supply of champagne. Looking back on that night, Carol couldn't remember exactly what they talked about, or what happened when. Whether that owed to the years in between, or that night's alcohol consumption, she still remembered the feeling, the tingly excitement of meeting someone new and exciting. Of course, she remembered the tobacco taste of the kiss that ended the evening, and the aspiring star's promise to take her to dinner the following weekend. When she told her roommate about their encounter that night, Heather had said it sounded like the opening scene of a movie. Others felt the same way that night. When the photographers had finished with their other quarry, they took a few stills of the young pair talking at close quarters. The studio executives noticed, too. Seeing easy chemistry, they thought the two good-looking actors could keep up on the screen. As agreed, Dash Silver knocked on the door of Carol's little garden apartment the following Friday night, and they walked to the nearby theater. What she didn't expect were the bursts of flashbulbs as they arrived, or the excited reactions of the dozen or so photographers who rushed over and asked them to pose. Their first kiss had been noticed by only a few people, while their second would show up in Variety and on the Society page of the Times. It would be years before such attention was ever a surprise again. After sleeping on the offer, Carol decided she would take the free trip. The Northern California summer had been colder than usual, and she thought the Los Angeles weather might better agree with her joints. She had nothing important on her schedule to keep her in town over the next few weeks. Enough time had passed since she left the southern part of the state that she didn't worry about showing her face there, and there were a few old friends she wouldn't mind looking up. She hadn't yet decided whether her dying former lover would be one of them. Carol paid a late-morning visit to Sally next door. Along with returning a tea service she had borrowed the last time her nieces came for a visit, Carol made sure her neighbor would feed the cat once a day, take in her mail, and generally keep an eye on the place. While they talked over decaf coffee and sugarless cookies, Sally asked all the obvious questions about the trip. Where are you staying? Who are you going to see? How long will you be gone? Carol didn't have all the answers, but more importantly, the barrage of questions made her uncomfortable. Rarely one to lie, she suddenly realized she had a phone appointment to keep and went home. To be safe, she made her phone reservation for the bus ticket before she had even put her cane down, just in case Sally could hear her talking through the walls. Two days later, she was no closer to knowing how long she'd stay or what she'd do while there. On the other hand, she had cashed in nearly expired reward points to book three nights at a hotel in Marina del Rey. Though the cat tried his best to impede her progress, she packed a suitcase with five nights' worth of blouses and undergarments, two pairs of slacks, and two shoes. The suitcase was heavier than she'd expected, but one of the younger women waiting with her at the corner helped her lift it onto the local bus, which took her to the depot in Emeryville. There, a porter loaded her bag, and she boarded the Greyhound that would take her eight hours south to her former home. Six decades earlier, she never had to take a bus. Forum Pictures always sent a town car for its rising stars. Silver and Gold arrived at parties in one car, but the studio made sure they went home separately for the sake of propriety. Because barely two weeks after they met, Maury Wallace asked Dash Silver what he thought about turning his off-camera romance into a celluloid one. 
Maury had a way of making people think he was asking when he was telling. It made him a likable boss without undermining his actual authority. It also made Carol a star. Within days of that conversation, Carol Gold was signed to an exclusive deal with Forum. Her third date with her new boyfriend was a dinner with the studio executives, and their seventh date took place on a studio lot in Silver Lake that was posing as a Parisian nightclub. With the benefit of hindsight, Carol saw the pattern that blurred the line between the aspects of their real relationship and what was just part of a movie. The two dates Carol and Dash had just before the movie began principal photography were the first two nights they actually spent alone. Even on those nights, Carol sometimes felt like Dash was performing, whether with his on-the-spot quips or his approach in the bedroom, where she could tell he had far more experience than she. She liked the performance, though, particularly the way he said her name during sex. With his smooth drawl, which masked the son-of-a-sharecropper roots of Hollis Dashel Selvier, Dash made Carol sound like an exotic moniker. She found ways to make him say it as often as she could. To most of the cast and crew, their first movie wasn't anything special, just another romance in an exotic location, serving as a test balloon for the studio's newest discoveries. The crew had made dozens of these movies, most of them in and out of theaters in just a few weeks. Nobody on the set expected Silver and Gold to match Bogart and Bergman's star power in what was just a second-rate knockoff of Casablanca. Dash Silver played an American spy in occupied Belgium, and Carol Gold was the sassy innkeeper who served as his liaison to the resistance. Shooting days were longer than any work Carol had ever done, and it was easy to lose track of time on a lot designed to keep out weather and sunlight. Forum Pictures tended to pay the minimum allowed under union rules and squeeze from its employees every minute to which the executives felt entitled. Needless to say, these tendencies didn't endear them to most of the crew, who spent many an evening loudly complaining about the situation over rye whiskey in the local bars that attracted blue-collar industry types. Maybe it was her upbringing, but Carol had more in common with most of the crew than most of the cast, so she and Dash would sometimes join them for drinks at the end of the night. Other young starlets might have blanched at the dirtier jokes, but Carol already knew most of them, and could tell them better. Dash never seemed as comfortable with that crowd, more likely to drink quietly while Carol made friends. Her lack of pretension endeared her to the cameramen and makeup artists, and it didn't hurt her career that she was fun to work with. None of that would have mattered if the Antwerp Inn had flopped, but it outperformed most of the studio's other romances. The movie wasn't great, but it was good enough. Dash and Carol traveled with the film to a few major cities. Audiences showed enough enthusiasm that silver and gold had officially become a bankable property. The bus was stuck in a traffic bottleneck on the 101 outside Salinas. Carol gazed out the window and thought about her friends from those days. She wondered if any of them were still around. She knew Dash's on-screen sidekick and former friend, the red-headed comedian Harry Lucas, had retired to Vermont. He still sent her cards on her birthday every year. Maury Wallace's death a few years earlier had made the paper. Most of the crew members had been older, so they were likely all gone. In a few cases, she knew that for sure. Ron Sternshine, 
the portly character actor who led the union and used to invite Caroline Dash to his Sunday salon, had shot himself long ago. Gary Berkowitz, who made her costumes for a dozen movies, died of a stress-induced heart attack not long after he was outed. Carol had never known Debbie Downing's real name until learning that the woman who played her sister in The Two Mrs. Thompsons had died homeless and penniless, just a few blocks from Carol and Dash's bungalow in Los Angeles. She never watched the old pictures anymore. Sometimes when she stayed with her younger sister, they would watch the classic movie channel on cable, but Carol always requested that they change the channel if any of her movies came on. Carol knew Judith still enjoyed showing her grandchildren what their elderly but still striking great-aunt used to be. Carol suspected her sister thought she had a hard time watching herself on screen, or that she didn't like being reminded of the aging process. But the truth was, it just made Carol think about everyone who wasn't around anymore. When the bus eventually passed the exit for the Hearst Castle, a young couple in front of Carol suddenly became animated talking about how they would have to make time to visit it on their return trip. She listened to them talk about the real Xanadu, its place in film history, and how that prompted them to start listing their favorite old-school movies. The girl included the Carpathian caper on her list, calling it an obscure film. And Carol smiled. That one had been her favorite, too. Movie fans sometimes forgot that Silver and Gold lasted only three years as an on-screen couple. They made seven movies together, attended dozens of events, and appeared in more gossip columns than seemed possible. Their real, off-screen relationship lasted just a few weeks short of three years. It seemed, for most of their relationship, that Carol and Dash rarely had enough time alone to ever take stock of where things stood. The studio knew star power could fade at any moment, and tried to reap the most it could from young actors before that happened. Between working, promoting, and romance, the two rarely had time alone together with nothing to do. They knew each other's bodies much better than each other's thoughts, and their suitcases received far more use than their furniture. When Carol received letters from her school friends, or bumped into them in person, some complained about spending too many quiet nights with their husbands. What felt like a waste to them was a routine Carol found rather appealing, as she had begun to realize those couples knew each other in a way she and Dash couldn't quite match. At a party in Tahoe, she met one of Dash's cousins, from a branch of the family she had never heard about. She didn't know he'd attended two years of college until she noticed a donation letter from his alma mater in a stack of unopened mail. Dash liked to order for her in restaurants, but 19 months into their relationship, he still forgot that Carol didn't eat shellfish and preferred black olives to green ones. At the time, that lack of familiarity seemed more an annoyance than a real concern for Carol. There would always be time to catch up on those things once they'd finished a few more movies. Once their careers were well established and they didn't have to work as often, they could slow down enough to have long talks and empty nights. In the meantime, she was having fun, and there was always something to do. Carol noticed that things with Dash started to feel different around the time they wrapped principal photography on Avenue of the Americas, a World War II movie about a businessman who couldn't enlist because he had a bum leg, and the intrepid secretary who helped him supply the Soviets in order to take on the Axis. In those days, 
the OWI paid studios to make the kinds of movies it wanted, and Maury Wallace predictably took the money. Dash often complained about being tired during that shoot, and a few times suggested that Carol could stay out with the cast and crew while he went home to sleep. He said he could use the rest. She didn't think much of it at first. They were together so much that having a rare night to talk with her friends was nice, and she was more comfortable joking and telling old stories when she didn't feel like half of a team. Even though she and Dash became famous at the same time, she'd always thought of him as the bigger star. He'd worked in film first. He was a few years older, and she enjoyed watching him act. Spending time with other actors, and without him, Carol realized how often she defaulted to being a supporting player in Dash's life. Interviewers usually talked to him first, and he tended to give boilerplate answers that Carol would enhance with a quip. Even the studio heads tended to suggest movies to Dash, while Carol was expected to go along with whatever they selected. She hadn't minded taking that secondary role, until the night when Dash's familiar drawl uttered a name other than hers while they were in bed together. In that moment, Carol refused to defer. He swore it had just been a solitary mistake, but Carol began to see the pattern as soon as she started looking. Chandra was hardly a common name. The only woman she knew by that name was a younger actress, who played a voluptuous Russian temptress in the film. She remained conspicuously absent when the cast got together. Though she left their bungalow that night and stayed on Harry Lucas's couch, Carol couldn't avoid the subject with a man she saw every day on set. Dash was always a professional at work, and he apologized daily for what he had done. When Chandra stopped showing up, Carol learned it was because Dash had asked the director to find her a different movie, and the studio had instead let her go entirely. Carol pitied her, but reluctantly gave Dash another chance, after a few weeks of apologies. He'd been the only real boyfriend she'd ever had, and she understood that her career was based on silver and gold as a package. Together, their names atop a poster meant people would come to the theater. Separately, she had no idea what they meant. So she moved back in, and they went through the motions for a time. Their co-workers had mostly taken Carol's side, so Dash didn't need to make excuses when he wanted to avoid camaraderie. And Carol often felt he was trying too hard to be charming when they were alone. Once filming was over, Dash casually informed her that he didn't feel the same way about her anymore and that he had recently started seeing a dancing cigarette girl on the side. This time, Carol wasn't surprised. The bus was supposed to drop Carol a few blocks from the hotel, but the driver had noticed her cane and offered to let her off right in front of the hotel. Though she could still get around easily, just slowly, she accepted the offer. It took her only a few minutes to check into her room and get settled. The room was small, but adequate for her needs and she liked that a bellhop in an old-fashioned uniform carried her bag. If not for the large television, and the fact that she needed to leave a credit card with the front desk as insurance, the hotel felt like those where she used to stay. She still had a few hours until the summer sunset, and had yet to decide whether she would visit Sherwood Pines. Dash's extra cash had yet to be touched, and Carol felt no guilt about using his money to see a few once-familiar sights. The front desk called her a taxi, and she decided Hollywood and Highland would be her first stop. 
The old movie house still looked the same as it did the year Silver and Gold attended the Academy Awards, just a few months before things fell apart. Carol didn't especially enjoy Bob Hope at the time, but she smiled when she found his handprints. She needed her reading glasses to identify most of the names written in concrete, and determined quickly that what used to be a special honor had become disappointingly common. It made her handprint's absence somehow painful, in a way it hadn't been before that moment. She remembered first coming there in a town car, dressed in an emerald evening gown. But now her reflection time was interrupted continuously by performers in garish costumes, superheroes asking for tips, and characters from movies she didn't recognize offering to pose for pictures. Tourists flocked to these aspiring actors, passing by a real movie star without even knowing her name. If Carol had her way, she would never have dealt with Dash Silver after his second affair. But even after their relationship had ended, their contracts remained active. What turned out to be their last film together was supposed to be a whirlwind romance set in the Pacific Theater, but they couldn't fake the spark they used to have. The studio made them keep their split a secret, so Silver and Gold attended screenings and walked red carpets, but the movie's reception was unmistakable. The elements were all there, but the film was oddly joyless. Without their familiar on-screen chemistry, their last film together was their first and only bomb. When Carol explained to the studio head what had happened with Dash, she found him surprisingly understanding. Still committed to getting his money's worth, Wallace cast them in different films from that point on. By the end of the decade, Dash Silver had developed a few wrinkles, and his temples had gone white. Still, he remained a bankable property for the studio, playing detectives, pirates, and Civil War generals. Carol Gold, however, became a purely supporting player as she aged, trading on her comedy skills and her name recognition and ever smaller parts. There weren't many good roles for women who weren't attached to a male star, and Carol was made to feel old while she still considered herself a young woman. She had made enough money to live a comfortably modest life. She rented a furnished room in a vintage hotel, and often appeared in stage productions, sometimes working as a voice actress for radio advertisements aimed at housewives. Gold without silver wasn't a huge draw, but there were worse things to be in Hollywood than a working actress. The morning after Dash revealed his infidelity, Carol used a day off to head down Wilshire and finally see the tar pits her father had said he wanted to visit one day. She regretted that she never had a chance to bring him to Los Angeles before he passed away. Carol stood for a while, leaning against the railing overlooking the largest of the pits. She had left town before the models of Colombian mammoths bellowing as they struggled against the mire, but the tar itself was the same as it had been since the Ice Age, the occasional bubble breaking the surface. The setting sun made the park look timeless, as if a major street wasn't just a short walk away, as if less time had passed since the southern part of California felt comfortable. She had difficulty getting across the park's grounds without her cane, and her shoes became stained from the little pockets of tar that popped up everywhere. But the view justified the journey. Not knowing quite how, Carol found that her day at the tar pits helped her decide to visit the hospice the next day, and what she would say to her dying former partner. By the time Dash Silver re-entered her life in 1951, 
Carol Gold thought she had moved on from their relationship. She'd felt understandably bitter for the first few years, and she found work mostly in supporting roles, while still seeing his smiling face on posters every time she went to the movies. After a while, though, she began to look back at their time together fondly. Even her diminished career wouldn't have been possible without him, and the good days had outnumbered the bad. She still drew crowds at parties with her entertaining stories, and the origins of some of her closest friendships dated back to that period. As she approached her thirties, she felt content with how life had gone. That was true, until the morning she walked out of her front door to get the paper and was greeted by bright flashbulbs and five men in suits peppering her with questions about Dash Silver. They were talking fast enough that she couldn't pick up what had happened until she brought in the paper. The bottom of the front page featured a picture of Dash in a suit, waving to the cameras. Next to it sat a smaller image of their famous kiss on a mountaintop in the Carpathian caper. The accompanying article informed her that Dash was in Washington to testify before a House committee. He had volunteered to identify former associates with supposed ties to the Russians. The article suggested that the committee looking into Hollywood subversion found certain pro-Russian scenes from Avenue of the Americas particularly troubling. They were giving Dash a chance to clarify the record. Carol had never been political, and realized she had never known much about Dash's politics. She did know that Ron Sternshine had been an outspoken union man and a thorn in the studio's side. Men like Ron were ostracized from the industry at an astonishing rate. Like a lot of people in town, Carol thought the matter had been settled three years earlier. She worried then about Ron and some of his Sunday salon regulars, but hadn't expected a new round of anxiety about her friends. She phoned Ron immediately and drove to his home in the valley as soon as she felt certain no one was lurking outside her place. Ron knew that Dash had his name in mind, as he was unshowered and lit a fresh cigarette as soon as he'd finished the previous one. Carol tried to reassure him, as did the few other actor friends who came by with coffee cake and nervous smiles. The phone rang throughout the day, but Ron refused to answer it. Later, he and his guests all crowded around the radio to hear Winchell's nightly report. Dash had indeed fingered Ron, claiming that his union activities were evidence of sympathies with the Soviets, as well as more than a dozen of their mutual acquaintances. What Carol hadn't expected was to hear her own name. She'd never heard Dash use her legal surname, until Winchell played a snippet of him accusing Carol of frequenting Ron's salon with the other alleged Reds, saying she always chose to stay out late drinking with union agitators. His voice was calm and methodical, as he described those nights of blowing off steam after long days on the set as some kind of class subversion, pointing out how often everyone complained about management and wages. In the months to come, Carol Gold would play Dash's words over and over in her head. Those was the quotes in the paper the next day that she memorized. During the broadcast, she'd been too blindsided to think clearly. She knew the accusations would bring trouble, but had no way of knowing how completely that day would change her life. She soon got used to seeing photos of her in Russian clothing from Avenue of the Americas appear in gossip columns. When she went to the grocery store one afternoon, her landlord threw her possessions on the street and locked her out without notice. 
Many of her friends found reasons not to call or write, and the little work she had soon disappeared. Her subpoena, prompted by Dash's testimony, was one of the last to arrive, after several of her friends had gone to jail, fled the country, or ended their own lives. Though she dutifully traveled to Washington as ordered, she was determined not to follow Dash's lead. She refused to answer any questions asked by the committee, including when the chair opened by asking her to state her name. Most of the money she had saved during her career was spent paying the large fine to avoid jail when her refusal to cooperate earned her a contempt sentence. No longer able to rent an apartment or work, she had no choice but to move back to her father's house in Berkeley and reclaim her childhood bedroom, the same bedroom in which she still slept. Through all of that, she thought as she took a cab down Venice to Sherwood Pines, Dash Silver had never apologized to her. After nearly three decades, he did make some public comments repudiating his testimony, saying the committee had threatened his livelihood if he didn't cooperate. That earned him forgiveness in some circles, usually from younger people who'd only seen silver and gold films on television or video. But many shared her view that Dash didn't speak up until the country's politics had changed, and there was no longer any risk in doing so. Still, some people, who couldn't know what Carol Gold had dealt with, began to treat Dash like a victim rather than an accuser. Those types, along with others who simply wanted to put the blacklist era behind them, even honored Dash during an award show. Carol couldn't bear to watch though she was glad to learn that half the crowd had refused to stand and clap for him. When they arrived, Carol asked the taxi driver if he would wait for her, assuming it would be hard to find a return cab. Sherwood Pines was an immaculate marble building, erasing any questions Carol had about Dash's finances. Carol used her cane to ring the bell for the receptionist. The nurse who answered and introduced herself as Angela was not much older than Carol had been when she met Dash. She looked like she could have arrived in town with her own dreams of stardom. When the nurse asked how she could help, Carol explained that Dash Silver had asked her to visit. The younger woman looked confused and began to flip through a chart of names. Carol realized that she needed to ask for Hollis Selvier. Angela's smile of recognition told Carol that even a dying Dash must have retained some of his charisma. Carol tried to hand the nurse a sealed envelope containing the note she had written the night before on hotel stationery. Instead of taking it, Angela explained that while Dash was in his final days, he was awake and alert enough to talk, and insisted that Carol deliver the note personally. She hadn't felt nervous on the drive over, but that changed as she was led down the hallway to Dash's room. Angela left Carol at Dash's door and said to go in whenever she was ready telling her to stop by reception if she needed anything. Once she was alone, Carol took a few breaths and thought about how she could best supplement her note. She looked through the door's glass opening, trying to get a glimpse of Dash before he saw her. Though only part of the room was visible, she could see he was propped up on a wide bed, with a bag of fluids in one arm and an electronic monitor against the back wall. Hospital blankets covered most of his body and Carol could only make out a wrinkled hand covered with liver spots. As she leaned forward to get a better look, the top of her cane knocked lightly on the door. Carol heard Dash whisper a croak to come in. She was about to do so when he spoke again 
repeatedly calling Angela's name and asking her to enter. Instead, Carol took the envelope with the name Dash written on the outside, slipped it under the door, and walked back toward reception. When the nurse asked why she was back so quickly, Carol simply explained that everything she needed to say was already in the note. She smiled, thanked Angela for her time, and returned to the waiting cab. Part of her had wanted to write a lengthy treatise, explaining all the effects Dash's betrayal had on her. Another part wanted to detail how she put her life back together in Berkeley, and gloat about how full her life was now, while he lay dying. Had she entered the room, she knew she would have landed on one of those options. Instead, she'd settled on a simpler solution the night before. One sentence atop the piece of stationery read, What you did should never be forgiven, followed by a two-column list of every name he'd provided to the committee. Sternshine and Berkowitz, Downing and Lucas, and all the others she could remember. They filled almost the whole sheet of paper, with just enough space left for Carol Gold to sign her own name. This story is copyright 2020 by Jeff Fleischer. This recording is copyright 2020 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.